0: chapter 40 of our vanishing wildlife this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by sarah jennings our vanishing wildlife by william t hornaday chapter 40 breeding game and fur in captivity game breeding The breeding of game in captivity for sale in the markets of the world is just as legitimate as the breeding of domestic species. This applies equally to mammals, birds, reptiles, and fishes. It is the duty of the nation and state to foster such industries and facilitate the marketing of their products without any unnecessary formalities, delays, or losses to producers or to purchasers. Already this principle has been established in several states. Without going into the records, it is safe to say that Colorado was the pioneer in the so-called More Game Movement, about 1899, but there is one person who would like to have the world believe that it started in the state of New York, about 1909. The idea is not quite as old as the hills, but the application of it in the United States dates back through a considerable vista of years. The laws of Colorado providing for the creation of private game preserves and marketing of their product under a tagging system are very elaborate, and they show a sincere desire to foster an industry as yet but slightly developed in this country. The laws of New York are much more simple and easy to understand than those of Colorado. There is one important principle, now fully recognized in the New York laws for game breeding, that other states will do well to adopt it is the fact that certain kinds of wild game cannot be bred and reared in captivity on a commercial basis. And this being true, it is clearly against public policy to provide for the sale of any such species. Why provide for the sale of preserved bred grouse and ducks which we know cannot be bred and reared in confinement in marketable numbers? For example, if we may judge by the numerous experiments that thus far have been made, as we certainly have a right to do, No man can successfully breed and rear in captivity on a commercial basis the canvasback duck, teal, pintail duck, ruffed grouse, or quail. This being the case, no amount of clamor from game dealers and their allies should ever induce any state legislature to provide for the sale of any of those species until it has been fully demonstrated that they have been and can be bred in captivity in large numbers. The moment the markets of a state are thrown open to those impossible species, from that moment the state game wardens must make a continuous struggle to prevent the importation and sale of those birds contrary to law. This proposition is so simple that every honest man can see it. All that any state legislature may rightfully be asked to do is to provide for the sale, under tags, of those species which we know can be bred in captivity in large numbers. When the Bain Law was drafted... Its authors considered with the utmost care the possibilities in the breeding of game in the United States on a commercial basis. It was found that as yet only two wild native species have been and can be reared in captivity on a large scale. These are the white-tailed deer and mallard duck. Of foreign species, we can breed successfully for market the fallow deer, red deer of Europe, and some of the pheasants of the Old World. For the rearing, killing, and marketing of all these, the Bain Law provides the simplest processes of state supervision that the best game protectors and game breeders of New York could devise. The tagging system is expeditious, cheap, and effective. Practically the only real concession that is required of the game breeder concerns the killing, which must be done in a systematic way, whereby a state game warden can visit the breeder's premises and affix the tags without any serious sacrifice of time or convenience on either side. The tags cost the breeder five cents each, and they pay the cost of the services rendered by the state. By this admirable system, which is very plainly set forth in the New York Conservation Commission's book of game laws, all the wild game of New York, and of every other state, is absolutely protected at all times against illegal killing and illegal importation for the New York market now is it not the duty of connecticut maryland virginia the carolinas and every other state to return our compliment by passing similar laws massachusetts came up to public expectations at the next session of her legislature after the passage of our Bayne law in nineteen thirteen california will try to secure a similar act and we know full well that her ducks geese quail grouse and band-tailed pigeon need it very much if the California protectors of wildlife succeed in arousing the great quiet mass of people in that state, their bane bill will be swept through their legislature on a tidal wave of popular sentiment. Elk. For people who own wild woodlands near large cities, there are good profits to be made in rearing white-tailed deer for the market. I would also mention elk, but for the fact that every man who rears a fine herd of elk quickly becomes so proud of the animals, and so much attached to them— that he cannot bear to have them shot and butchered for market. Elk are just as easy to breed and rear as domestic cattle, except that in the fall breeding season the fighting of rival bulls demands careful and intelligent management. Concerning the possibilities of feeding elk on hay at $25 per ton and declaring an annual profit, I am not informed. If the elk require to be fed all the year round, the high price of hay and grain might easily render it impossible to produce marketable three-year-old animals at a profit. White-tailed deer Anyone who owns from 100 to 1,000 acres of wild, brushy, or forest-covered land can raise white-tailed or Virginia deer at a profit. With smaller areas of land, free-range becomes impossible, and the prospects of commercial profits diminish and disappear. In any event, a fenced range is absolutely essential and the best fence is the page 88 inches high all horizontals of number nine wire top and bottom wires of number seven and the perpendicular tie wires of number twelve this fence will hold deer elk bison and wild horses in large enclosures the white-tailed deer is hardy and prolific and when fairly cooked its flesh is a great delicacy in Vermont the average weights of the deer killed in that state in various years have been as follows In 1902, 171 pounds. In 1903, 190 pounds. In 1905, 198 pounds. In 1906, 200 pounds. In 1907, 196 pounds. In 1908, 207 pounds. And in 1909, 155 pounds. The reason for the great drop in 1909 is yet to be ascertained. In nineteen ten, in New York City, the wholesale price of whole deer carcasses was from twenty two to twenty five cents per pound. Venison saddles were worth from thirty to thirty five cents per pound. On the bill of fare of a first class hotel, a portion of venison costs from a dollar fifty to two fifty, according to the diner's location. It is probable that such prices as these will prevail only in the largest cities, and therefore they must not be regarded as general. Live white-tailed deer can be purchased for breeding purposes at prices ranging from 25 to $35 each. A good eastern source of supply is Blue Mountain Forest, Mr. Austin Corbin, President, Broadway and Cortland Street, New York. In the west, good stock can be procured from the Cleveland Cliffs Iron Company through C.V.R. Townsend, Nagani, Michigan, whose preserve occupies the whole of Grand Island, Lake Superior. The Department of Agriculture has published for free distribution a pamphlet entitled Raising Deer and Other Large Game Animals, in the United States, by David E. Lance, which contains much more valuable information, although it leaves much unsaid. All breeders of deer are cautioned that during the fall and early winter months, all adult white-tailed bucks are dangerous to man, and should be treated accordingly. A measure of safety can be secured in a large park by compelling the deer always to keep at a respectful distance and making no pets whatever. Whenever a buck finds his horns and loses his fear of man, climb the fence quickly. Bucks in the rutting season sometimes seem to go crazy and often they attack men wantonly and dangerously. The method of attack is to an unarmed man almost irresistible. The animal lowers his head, stiffens his neck, and with terrible force drive straight forward for your stomach and bowels. Usually there are eight sharp spears of bone to impale you. The best defense of an unarmed man is to seize the left antler with the left hand, and with the right hand pull the deer's front right foot from under him. Merely holding to the horns makes great sport for the deer. He loves that unequal combat. The great desiderotum is to put his forelegs out of commission, and get him down on his knees. Does are sometimes dangerous, and inflict serious damage by rising on their hind feet and viciously striking with their sharp front hoofs. These tendencies in American deer are mentioned here as a duty to persons who may desire to breed deer for profit. THE RED DEER OF EUROPE Anyone who has plenty of natural forest food for deer and a good market within fair range may find the European red deer a desirable species. It is of size smaller and more easily managed than the Wapiti, and is more easily marketed because of its smaller size. As a species it is hardy and prolific, and of course its venison is as good as that of any other deer. Live specimens for stocking purposes can be purchased of S. A. Stephen, agent for Carl Hegenbeck, Cincinnati Zoological Gardens, or of Wenz and Mackensen, Yardley, Pennsylvania. At prices ranging from sixty to one hundred dollars each, according to size and age. At present, the supply of specimens in this country on hand for sale is very small. The fallow deer, this species is the most universal park deer of Europe. It seems to be invulnerable to neglect and misuse, for it has persisted through countless generations of breeding in captivity and the abuse of all nations. In size it is a trifle smaller than our white-tailed deer, with spots in summer, and horns that are widely flattened at the extremities in a very interesting way. It is very hardy and prolific, but of course it cannot stand anything that could be put upon it. It needs a dry shed in winter, red clover hay, and crushed oats for winter food, and no deer should be kept in mud. As a commercial proposition it is not so meaty as the white-tail, but it is less troublesome to keep the adult males are not such vicious or dangerous fighters as whitetail bucks, live specimens are worth from 50 to $75. The Essex County Park Commissioners, Orange, New Jersey, have had excellent success with this species. In 1906, they purchased 25 does and 4 bucks, and placed them in an enclosure of 150 acres, on a wooded mountainside. In 1912, they had 150 deer, and were obliged to take measures for a disposal of the surplus. Mrs. Wens and Mackensen, keep an almost continuous supply of fallow deer on hand for sale. THE INDIAN SAMBAR DEER I have long advocated the introduction in the southern states, wherever deer can be protected, of this great, hulking, animated venison factory. While I have not delved deeply into the subject of weight and growth, I feel sure from casual observations of the growth of about twenty-five animals "'that this species produces more venison "'during the first two years of its life "'than any other deer with which I am acquainted. "'I regard it as the greatest venison producer "'of the whole deer family, "'and I know that is a large order. "'The size of a yearling is almost absurd. "'It is so great for an animal of tender years. "'When adult, the species is for its height "'very large and heavy. "'As a food-producing animal, "'located in the southern hill forests "'and taking care of itself, "'there is millions in it, But it must be kept under fence, for in no southern or northern state would any such mass of juicy wild meat long be permitted to roam at large unkilled. Through this species I believe that a million acres of southern timberlands, now useless except for timber growth, could be made very productive in choice venison. The price would be a good fence and protection from poachers. The Indian sambar deer looks like a short-legged, big-bodied understudy of our American elk. It breeds well in captivity, and it is of quiet and tractable disposition. It cannot live in a country where the temperature goes down to 25 degrees Fahrenheit, and remains there for long periods. It would, I am firmly convinced, do well all along the Gulf Coast, and if acclimatized along the Gulf with the lapse of time and generations, it would become more and more hardy, grow more hair, and push its way northward, until it reached the latitude of Tennessee." but then in a wild state it could not be protected from poachers. As stated elsewhere, Dr. Ray V. Pierce has successfully acclimatized and bred this species in his St. Vincent Island Game Preserve near Apalachicola, Florida. More than that, the species has crossed with the white-tailed deer of the island. Living specimens of the Indian sambar deer are worth from $125 to $250, according to size and other conditions. Just at present it seems difficult for Americans to procure a sufficient number of males. We have had very bad luck with several males that we attempted to import for breeding purposes. The Mallard Duck A great many persons have made persistent attempts to breed the canvasback, redhead, mallard, black duck, pintail, teal, and other species on a commercial basis. So far as I am aware, the mallard is the only wild duck that has been bred in sufficient numbers to slaughter for the markets. The wood duck and mandarin can be bred in fair numbers, but only sufficient to supply the demand for living birds for park purposes. One would naturally suppose that a species as closely allied to the mallard as the black duck is known to be would breed like the mallard. But the black duck is so timid and nervous about nesting as to be almost worthless in captivity. All the species named above except the mallard must at present and in general be regarded as failures in breeding for the market of all american ducks the common mallard is the most persistent and successful breeder it quickly becomes accustomed to captivity it enjoys park life and when given even half a chance it will breed and rear its young unquestionably the mallard duck can be reared in captivity in numbers limited only by the extent of breeders facilities The amount of net profit that can be realized depends wholly upon the business acumen and judgment displayed in the management of the flock. The total amount of knowledge necessary to success is not so very great, but at the same time the exercise of a fair amount of intelligence, and also careful diligence, is absolutely necessary. Naturally, the care and food of the flock must not cost extravagantly, or the profits will inevitably disappear as a contribution to the cause of game breeding for the market, and the creation of a new industry of value, Mr. L. S. Crandall and the author wrote for the New York State Conservation Commission a pamphlet on breeding mallard ducks for market. Copies of it can be procured of our State Conservation Commission at Albany by enclosing ten cents in stamps. Breeding Fur-Bearing Animals when hundreds of persons wrote to me asking for literature on the breeding of fur-bearing animals for profit, for ten years I was compelled to tell them that there was no such literature. During the past three years a few offerings have been made, and I lose not a moment in listing them here. Life Histories of Northern Animals by Ernest T. Seaton, Charles Scribner's Sons, two volumes, $18. Contains carefully written and valuable chapters on fox farming, skunk farming, Martin farming, and mink farming, and other valuable life histories of the fur-bearing animals of North America. Rod and Gun in Canada, a magazine for sportsmen published by W.J. Taylor, Woodstock, Ontario, contained in 1912 a series of articles on the culture of black and silver foxes by R.B. and L.V. Croft. Country Life in America has published a number of illustrated articles on fox and skunk farming. With its usual enterprise and forethought, the Biological Survey of the Department of Agriculture has published a valuable pamphlet of 22 pages on silver fox farming by Wilfred H. Osgood, copies of which can be procured by addressing the Secretary of Agriculture. In consulting that contribution, however, it must be borne in mind that just now, in fox farming, history is being made more rapidly than heretofore. I do not mean to say that the above are the only sources of information on fur farming for profit, but they are the ones that have most impressed me. The files of all the journals and magazines for sportsmen contain numerous articles on this subject, and they should be carefully consulted. Black Fox Farming The ridiculous prices now being paid in London for the skins of black or silver foxes has created in this country a small furor over the breeding of that colour phase of the red fox. The prices that actually have been obtained both for skins and for live animals for breeding purposes have a strong tendency to make people crazy. Fancy paying $12,000 in real money for one pair of live black foxes? That has been done on Prince Edward Island, and $10,000 per pair is now regarded as a bargain counter figure. On Prince Edward Island in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, black fox breeding has been going on for ten years, and is now on a successful basis one man has made a fortune in the business and it is rumored that a stock company is considering the purchase of his ten acre fox ranch at a fabulous figure the enormous prices obtainable for live black foxes male or female make diamonds and rubies seem cheap and commonplace and it is no wonder that enterprising men are tempted to enter that industry the price of a black fox is one of the wonders of a recklessly extravagant and whimsical age All the fur-wearing world knows very well that fox fur is one of the poorest of furs to withstand the wear and tear of actual use. About two seasons' hard wear are enough to put the best fox skin on the wane, and three or four can be guaranteed to throw it into the discard. Even the finest black fox skin is nothing superlatively beautiful. A choice cross for fox skin, costing only $50, is far more beautiful as a colour proposition. But London joyously pays 2500 or $3,000 for a single black fox skin to wear. Of course, all such fads as this are as ephemeral as the butterflies of summer. The Russo-Japanese War quickly reduced the value of Alaskan blue foxes from $30 to $18, and away went all the Alaskan fox farms. A similar twist of fortune's fickle wheel may in any year send the black fox out of royal favour, and remove the bottom from the business of producing it. Let us hope, however, that the craze for that fur will continue, for we like to see our friends and neighbours make good profits. Pheasant Rearing This subject is so well understood by game breeders, and there is already so much good literature available regarding it, it is not necessary that I should take it up here. End of chapter 40